You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 11th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. President Vladimir Putin of Russia seeks re-election. We'll take a long, hard look at his chances. The UK's Prime Minister explains why encouraging people to go to crowded pubs amid a pandemic seemed like a good idea at the time. And how prepared are you for a catastrophic failure of our power grids? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Terry Stiastny and Charles Hecker, will discuss the day's big stories and we'll leaf through legendary Copenhagen restaurant Noma's venture into magazines. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risks, currently on book leave, or so he keeps telling us. We may come back to that. And by Terry Stiastny, political journalist and author, who is also writing a book. I don't, I don't know which one of you to tease mercilessly first. <laughs> I, I think Terry is closer to being finished. Go, 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 with, go with her. How, how is yours going, Terry? It's uh, Touchwood. I've nearly finished the second draft. I'm aiming to get it done before Christmas. I've got about ooh, half a chapter an extra chapter that I've decided to add in uh, left to do. And even as you say all that, how completely delusional do you think it sounds? It probably sounds quite completely delusional, but I've just been, you know, adding in last little bits. I've just got to go through again and find all the bits I've, I've missed out that I thought I'd finished. Oh, the, the, finished. the adding the last little bit stage. Um, Charles, how, how is yours looking? I, I think I'm very close to finishing a first draft. Mm. And then we'll have to see how many drafts come after that. Um, but we're getting close to the, the sort of end of year deadline for a first rough draft. OK, well, we have discussed that because this does somewhat foreshadow one of the stories in which the British library may well come up as a subject, but we will start in Russia, and in a move which has prompted neither widespread exclamations of gadzooks nor stampedes at bookmakers. President Vladimir Putin of Russia declared over the weekend that he will be a candidate in Russia's presidential election in March. He has not as yet revealed the precise margin he will win by, though one spokesman who may not have meant to say it out loud has said that Putin will be re-elected with more than 90% of the vote, which must be reassuring. The announcement was made at a ceremony at which Putin presented medals to some of the Russian soldiers who had survived his rampage in Ukraine and was carefully choreographed to appear spontaneous. Um, Charles, first of all, I mean, I know March is quite a way away, but do you have any plans to get a few tins in, have some people over and sit up to watch the results. And and have an election watching party. I I think we have to use the word election very advisedly Mm. here. Uh, And we'll have to think of a new word to describe the process that's going to reappoint uh, President Putin to another six-year term in the Kremlin. This is really electoral theater and not an election. Russia, of course, does not have competitive multi-party democracy and does not have free and fair elections. The elections have been tampered with in Russia ever since the Russian Federation was born. Um, They're tampered with 
inelegantly, clumsily, but thoroughly. I mean, it's interesting to hear that somebody said that they were anticipating a 90% result. Um, typically, what happens here is that, that um, you project a very, very high level of turnout mm -hmm. um, so that you can talk about how high engagement is in Russia. And then, of course, there is a reassuringly high margin of victory for the president, um, but it has to be credible and not quite sort of North Korea style. 90% um, is a little bit higher than I might have anticipated, but then again, a wartime president, you must understand, Andrew is, of course, a very popular president. Well, obviously, uh, Terry, I, I confess to being myself always quite mesmerized by spectacles like this. It, it's this thing whereby, just as as I have found in my own experience, people seeking bribes are always absolutely outraged if you accuse them of seeking a bribe. Um, so, Demo not Democrats, the other thing, uh, demagogues I was reaching for, and tyrants do always, almost always feel obliged to go through these motions of saying, look, we're, we're a democracy, really. Even North Korea famously styles itself the Democratic People's Republic. Well, yes, exactly. They want, they want you to think that, you know, they have been chosen among loads of different potential options by their great and loving and, and ever grateful people. And one of the really bizarre bits of the theatre is that he has to put on this sort of pretend show of reluctance, like, well, you know, I wasn't going to stand, but, oh, go on, since you've asked, you know, well, maybe I will, you know, I'll go all out there just for, for your benefit and for the greater glory of the nation, which is another sort of strange part of the, the, of the theatricals. But, but to follow that up, Terry, is it imaginable that literally anybody takes this at face value? I mean, you would have to be really extraordinarily simple to believe that that's actually what was going on. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that your average Russian watching this and, and watching all of the, you know, the discussions and the people trying to, you know, ask him nicely, would you stand and, and petitions and all of that is genuinely believes this. But and I think they've had, you know, decades and decades of, of leaders doing similar things. And they, you know, they perfectly well know that this is all, they, this is all a sham. But I, mean, I just wonder if people are slightly wondering, look at the other ages of, you know, previous Russian leaders and starting to think, well, you know, Putin passed 70 you know, again, how old will he be come the end of his next term? Um, Charles, you, you were scoffing earlier uh, at any suggestion that this was going to be in any way a competitive contest. And yet there is so far at least one declared opponent. This is uh, Boris Nadezhdin. He's a former member of the Duma and he is actually running on an anti-war ticket. Um, are we at least a little bit surprised that this is being allowed? Because assuming that Mr Nadezhdin actually gets up to the gate, and I would be very, very careful about taking a room on upper floors if I was him, but nonetheless, it, it is acknowledging that there is opposition to the war. So this may be another one in a longstanding tradition of these sort of straw candidates who act as a pressure valve. Mm. Um, this is an individual who is designed to sort of gather up a certain amount of the negative feelings and, and opposition to the war, such as it may be in Russia, um, and, and just sort of gather it up in one space and then have it all sort of um, disposed with, you know, together with Mr. Nadezhdin. Um, you know, the, the, the Soviet government and the Russian government have always allowed a certain amount of what they've called systemic opposition, and that is a sort of arranged tolerated and sort of official opposition. Um, so Boris Nadezhdin's candidacy in this may be yet another product of this systemic opposition. Um, it's, it's 
token. And considering that, you know, you get arrested if you hold up a blank piece of paper as a sort of fake protest in, in, in Russia, um, it's going to be very, very um, interesting to see how far he can take his anti-war opposition. I mean, Terry, for all the difference it does make to anything, is there actually, as we're able to understand it, a coherent Vladimir Putin platform beyond basically vote for me or else? Well, I mean, he seems to be building on some kind of basic things. Obviously, the first, the main one is, you know, support for the war in Ukraine, trying to define himself in this kind of battle against the West. Uh, he's trying to carry on being sort of more socially conservative and again, saying this is another way we're different from the decadent West. You know, we have traditional, you know, true Russian values. And also trying to say, look, the economy is not as bad as you would expect, given, again, the evil West who are uh, doing everything they can to, to foil us. On that thought, does he actually kind of have a case? Uh, Because when sanctions were introduced against Russia, getting on for two years ago now, Charles, there there were quite a lot of eerie predictions, eerie I was stretching for there, also indeed eerie predictions, that this was going to, you know, absolutely tank Russia's economy, that the, the leading form of enterprise in Russia would be people attempting to sell each other broken pencils from out of tin cups, uh, that the country would be impoverished and immiserated and barely able to fend for itself. And none of that has happened, at least not yet. No. Uh, the sanctions program has revealed the weakness of sanctions programs. Sanctions are supposed to do at least one of two things. They're supposed to punish um, someone, you know, the, the perpetrator, and they're supposed to uh, modify their behavior. In this case, neither of those things have happened. The Russian economy has actually grown in the past two years. It's grown in some cases faster than the UK economy. Um, you've seen things like the amount of exports from Germany to Kyrgyzstan increased by 300 percent, um, while the Kyrgyz economy has not grown proportionally to that rate. So we know um, that countries and companies are exporting sanctioned goods to third-party countries that are then sort of mysteriously making their way across the Russian border. Um, as long as the Russian, as long as the price of oil stays relatively high, Russia's economy will remain relatively robust. Um, if these sanctions are ever going to work, um, it will take much stricter sanctions and much more time. And Terry, another thing which has not happened uh, entirely regrettably is the collapse of Russia's positions in Ukraine. Ukraine's much vaunted summer counteroffensive did not make the progress that was advertised. From Russia's point of view now, though, is this, and this is a very, very grim prospect for any of our Ukrainian listeners, but is Russia now thinking, well, we just hold what we have for another year and hope Trump gets up in the in the next election in the United States? Yeah, that is entirely possible. I mean, they almost end up, you know, coming full circle. They end up controlling effectively the territory that they had been in before the invasion. And, you know, yes, Ukraine can keep on asking for more money and more supplies. And if uh, the Americans come next year are not going to do that, then it's going to be very hard for them to to push any further. Uh, Final quick one on this subject, Charles. And this is a, a story which, well, nobody really knows anything about apart from what isn't happening, which is that Alexei Navalny obviously Putin's best known opponent uh, currently, well, we think is, and this is the crux of the story, resident of a penal colony somewhere in Russia, uh, is does not appear to be there. And it, I don't get the sense that there is any, that he has made some sort of daring escape. But either this is a bureaucratic snafu or something more sinister may be afoot. 
No, this is concerning for a couple of reasons. I mean, the official explanation for his absence is that he's being transferred from one penal colony to another. Um, but he did miss a scheduled, a court scheduled um, appearance, and that was the cause of the initial alarm. Um, it's entirely possible that he's in transit um, between prisons. Um, the other thing, of course, is that he's in an extremely perilous state of health. Mm. Um, and so there's enormous concern for his well-being. And um, we don't know. Um, you know, whether his health has deteriorated or whether he's he's stable. Um, and he is really one of the only significant legitimate opposition candidates um, to Putin. And perhaps it is no coincidence that he's been silenced and has gone missing at the same time as this presidential announcement. Well, we will, of course, be picking that up if there proves to be anything to it. But here in the UK, it has been the turn of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to face the inquiry into the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Sunak is is arguably one of few people in the country for whom recalling the period is a pleasant stroll down memory lane. Sunak was at the time the Chancellor of the Exchequer in charge of giving people large sums of money and was consequently extremely popular. Today, Sunak has mostly been explaining his eat out to help out plan of the summer of 2020, under which Britons were enjoined to revitalise the economy with offers of discounts at pubs and restaurants, but which ended up generating a goodly deal of extra business for hospitals. When asked why the Treasury didn't consult with SAGE and the Health Ministry when planning the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, the Prime Minister had this to say. In the same way that other economic decisions like a VAT cut for hospitality or a stamp duty cut or indeed furlough or anything else or grants for the hospitality industry wouldn't ordinarily be cleared with medical advisers, nor was this, because we had already made the collective decision to reopen indoor hospitality, and this was a policy that sat within and beneath that. Happy days. Um, Terry, do you remember, because I did not until I was looking up news reports of that period, um, Rishi Sunak serving meals, the Festival Hall branch of Wagamama. I, remember, I do. I remember him, you know, big picture mm. of him with a little badge, little yep. name tag yes, saying I, Rishi, kind yep. of serving noodles to, you know, to happy happy customers. Yeah. Um, did, did, Charles, did you, did you eat out to help out? Did you avail yourself of this scheme at the time? I think I may have had a discounted sandwich. I, I think I might have done, but I think I kept it to eating outdoors only, mm. um, you know, because I think the prime minister's in those pictures, the prime minister's only sort of nod towards hygiene was that he rolled up his sleeves. Um, and so I, rather than eating out to, to help out, I ate outdoors. <laughs> I, I did actually go, I remember getting, I think, back into the country because you could still travel at that point. And I'd been in France where people had been allowed to eat out for quite a lot longer, as far as I remember, and coming into a, a big crowded restaurant in the middle of London um, indoors. And, and now it seems really strange. But at the time, everyone thought, great, we can go out and eat again. This is really good. But, you know, obviously, with hindsight, that wasn't the case. This but, was at the point where we had allegedly sort of flattened the curve and, mm. and, and it was OK to go back out. Was that it? Yeah, I, I think it was it was something along those lines. And, and this scheme is uh, blamed in some circles for abruptly unflattening it. Um, but was it necessarily, Charles, a, a terrible idea? I mean, obviously, the hospitality sector, w- I mean, I know everybody took a massive hit. You know, that'll happen when you basically close the economy. But for, obviously, for the hospitality sector, this was an especially grim period. Yeah, poor Rishi Sunak, his heart was in the right place. Um, but um, the testimony to the COVID hearings that came before him um, revealed that there was considerable opposition to this plan in the scientific community and that it does a bit stretch 
um, the boundaries of belief for him to not think that somebody out there amongst all of the advisors in number 10 and, and in the government um, would caution against this. Um, you know, I think that these were ultimately political decisions. Um, what he told us about going to the restaurants is that the folks who are waiting tables and the folks who are in the back cooking food and the folks who are even further behind them cleaning the dishes, these people were, were being decimated um, by the economic collapse caused by the pandemic and caused by lockdown and that we needed to help them. And so this sounded like something that was a very good idea. Um, if he had listened to medical advisors, um, he might have had a second thought on that. Uh, Terry, this is a, a slightly contrarian, hot, takey, devil's advocate, Kate E. sort of position. But is there anything to be said for watching these hearings with a certain soupçon of sympathy uh, for the people not in the dock, though some would argue that they should be, but, but the people being questioned? Because... It does reveal, or it does, or at least should remind us, does it not, that government at a national level, especially in a crisis, is really hard. The job amounts to people coming to you and saying, here are some choices. They all suck. Pick one. Yeah, I think that, I think that is um, a fair point. And, and I think it's, you know, it's slightly weird. You sort of see Rishi Sunak trying to be this very technical person saying, oh, well, I couldn't talk to the medical people because this was all market-sensitive information. I said, you could have done. They weren't going to be going off and speculating in restaurant chain chairs. You know, it's not, that wouldn't have happened. But yes, they were trying to do, I mean, looking at the furlough, scheme. You know, that was something they came up with really quickly. It was an example of civil servants and politicians going, how can we do this? Okay, let's get this done. And I remember decisions being taken that did actually save people's jobs within the space of a few hours. And so, yes, that was difficult. But the trouble was, as we've seen countless times during this inquiry, the people at the very top of government, particularly Boris Johnson, were changing their minds, not on the basis of good evidence, but on the basis of how they felt about something or what they'd read in the papers or what they'd just heard. And so they were just, they didn't have a clear view of what they wanted to do. They were, you know, this metaphor of the shopping trolley with the wonky wheel careering all over the place. That does seem to have been, you know, the way of doing it. And spending half their time arguing with each other, which is what happens, again, in crises. Um, but they just didn't seem to get that under control at all. Uh, Terry, while we have you here as British politics boffin in elsewhere in a fun week for the Prime Minister, he is looking forward, that is almost certainly the wrong choice of words, to the first vote on his revised uh, Rwanda plan, which is due to happen tomorrow. Now, the thing is, to be clear, if I have read the parliamentary timetables correctly, there is almost no imaginable way this thing can end up on the books and functioning and the law of the land before another election is due, at which the Conservative Party will lose and be replaced by the Labour Party who have promised to abolish it? Uh, it it's pretty unlikely. I mean, um, basically, Rishi Sunak is calling this emergencies legislation, but it's still got to go through all the stages. Um, there's a chance he could lose tomorrow in this what's called the second reading vote. Um, he probably won't. People will probably hold their fire until later on in the process. They will probably try and amend it further down the line. And then he's got to get this thing through the House of Lords. And the House of Lords can hold it up for you know months. Um, they can vote against it. It can go back and forth between the Commons and the Lords. And they can't actually, they haven't got time to try and force this through the Lords, but potentially before an election. So yes, there are a lot of stumbling blocks between now and this actually being law. It, it, it would be quite good for to watch the Conservative Party eat itself alive over a question, Charles, of what is essentially, shall we rearrange the deck chairs or reupholster them first? But just finally, before we move off this, because we do have a bit more UK politics to discuss,
discuss. I want to ask you each in turn, you first, Charles, to call it. Is Rishi Sunak going still to be leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister at the next election? No, he is not. Excellent. Terry? Uh, yes, he is. Okay. Well, this is controversial. <laughs> I, fight, think, I, think they, I think they are mad. I think they are not quite that mad that they will get rid of another leader. You know, they should look at last year when they had three prime ministers in the space of a couple of months. And I think even the really fringe people are going to say, no, let's just have him sacrifice him, get someone new after the election. See, I think the, the, the run up to the election is exactly the time that you want to dump the head of the party. And there are too many people already that want this job instead of him. And the rumor reel is rife in Westminster about people people who are jockeying for position already. Too many other people want this too badly. Well, staying in the UK, Rishi Sunak's deputy, Oliver Dowden, has been unwittingly demonstrating that people will tend to filter the mildest of statements through their own political prejudices. Dowden has caught an amount of heck in recent days for suggesting that British households lay in torches, candles and battery-powered radios as fallbacks in the event of a failure of the power grid. From almost anybody else, this would sound like advice so sensible as to verge on the banal. From a senior figure in an unpopular government, it has been received in some quarters as akin to calling for the legalising of hunting of Labradors with crossbows. Um, Terry, is everybody being a bit harsh on Al- Oliver Dowden? This is, this is basically sensible advice. It is, it is basically sensible advice, but when you see the way it gets written, it's like, you know, our entire electricity grid could go down, you will have no heating, you will have no hot water, you will have no... And, you know, I think the trouble is with Britain at the moment, you can imagine that that might happen. You know, this is a country where, like, half the railways aren't working and people have a tendency to believe that, oh, if the government says, if the government says something might not work, then it must be really, really bad. It must be much worse than they are actually telling us at the minute. So I think that's why people suddenly, you know, if we had this discussion in our house this morning, like, what would we do? What would we do if everything completely collapsed? And yeah, the, the decision was unclear. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I do have a torch. I absolutely certainly <laughs> own a torch. I do have a battery powered radio, but I'm not sure if I have any batteries for it. Candles, I think I might be due a candle run now that I think of it. Charles, you know, you work literally for control risks. How, how, how prepped are you? Yeah, it's all very nice to talk about personal resilience. Um, and, you know, the, the headline in The Times said that we are all just four meals away from anarchy. Um, I'm one meal away from anarchy, <laughs> usually at the, on the best of days. Um, you know, I'm not I'm, personally, I'm not prepared for this in the slightest. And, and no matter how much the government tells us as individuals to prepare for this, um, I don't think any individual household um, would make it very long at all if the grid collapsed. And, and it's very nice of the government to give us a bit of um, paternalistic advice. Um, but really, they are the first line of defense in mm-hmm. all of this. And Terry said it in, in her previous remarks. And that is, you know, this is all about how governments act in a time of crisis. And if they're not prepared to keep the lights on in a time of crisis, then, you know, we can put all the mineral water we want in the cellar. It's not going to help. Terry, have you ever gone slightly prepper? Because there there have been events in recent years where I I have known people to go. I I haven't known anyone who's gone full prepper, but I do know people who did start laying in canned food, bottled water and and so forth. First time around the talk of what a a no-deal Brexit might have meant. (laughs) I think I probably bought more tins of tomatoes than olive oil than I strictly needed. There you go. Because I thought, you know, life without pasta would be quite bad. So, (laughs) So... 
So you you but did go a bit proper. Only a bit. I mean, only like add a few extra things to the to the supermarket delivery order. It's not like I'm still living off these tins. So I think the only candles I've got are the ones for Christmas. But I'm thinking I need more Christmas candles. So maybe I'll get an extra box of those as well. Because in 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 fairness to Oliver Dowden, uh, Charles, which is obviously not a phrase anybody utters lightly, I think the point he may have been trying to make was not the grid could fail because this country is a shambles and it's falling to bits and God, who are the clowns who've been governing for 13 years? Um, he was talking, I think he was getting at the idea that power grids could be potentially vulnerable to hostile actions by enemy states. Uh, there has been a at least one that I can think of deliberately engineered failure of a power grid in recent memory. That was in Ukraine, presumably by Russia in 2015. Is that something we should take seriously? Yes, it's something we should take very seriously. And you're right. Oliver Dowden is not warning us against the general sort of decrepitude of British infrastructure. He's warning us against the likelihood of external threats. Um, and that includes cyber attacks. Um, it also includes something called space plasma. Solar storms. So, which we're meant to be more concerned about than I think we are. Like the current event of 1859. Exactly right, mm. Andrew, um, which was which was the hurling of great amounts of space plasma specifically targeted at the United Kingdom, if I'm not mistaken, um, and, and other things called space weather. Yeah. So um, there is a wide array of threats by state and non-state hostile actors. We're meant to be prepared for every last one of them. Um, after this broadcast, I'm running to the supermarket. <laughs> Just finally on this, Terry, uh, how much faith in such circumstances would you have in your fellow citizens? Because the thing that did strike me at the time about the COVID-19 pandemic was that the the social contract held up actually remarkably well, not just here in the UK, but in most of the world. I mean, there were a few examples of things getting a bit rowdy over the last four pack of toilet roll. But other than that, um, this, this calamitous cessation of, of human activity, enormous amounts of fear of the future did not prompt um, widespread uproar. Yeah, I think it probably would be different now. And I, I remember when I was a child and it was like, you know, the winter of discontent and the TV regularly did go off and the power went off and you'd eat your supper by candlelight, which when I was about seven, I thought it was brilliantly exciting. And now I realise that for my parents, it must have been an absolute nightmare. And I think people wouldn't tolerate that so well uh, now and we were having a discussion at home earlier which was like well would we go to the countryside where you could have a wood burner and, and use chop logs for fuel and, and be near a farm or would you stay in the city and would, where would things break down you know most most sort of significantly and you know where would you get the power back quickest but I think people possibly would panic and you probably would have people trying to sort of flee out of London or go places or do something silly Well we will move along because it is that time of year at which attention seeking corporate entities attempt to interest us in developments during the previous 12 months which pertain broadly to their area of enterprise. One such is Google, which has released its annual list of the year's most searched stories, topic and topics, rather, and people. The year's most searched people were, it says here, Damar Hamlin, Jeremy Renner, Andrew Tate, Kylian Mbappe and Travis Kelsey. I've heard of four of them. <laughs> One of them I definitely, a couple I definitely hadn't heard of. And it's like mostly if something really bad happens to you. you... Where, where else do we, where, who, who, can, who can beat four on that? Heard of... Uh, no. I've not, heard of Jeremy, Ren Jeremy of Renner's the, the Marvel that's, guy who that's ran himself the one I over that's with his... The one I hadn't oh, that's heard the one I'd heard of. Oh, yeah, he no. ran himself over with his snowplow. <clears throat> who is Damar Hamlin? Damar Hamlin uh, is a footballer for the Buffalo Bills who became famous for reasons which he would not have enjoyed. He was the one who was nearly killed on the field uh, in a game in January. Uh, he did 
I'm pleased to say uh, recover because absolutely horrifying injury, ghastly it was. Um, uh, Travis Kelsey is also an American footballer who I think is that with it, Taylor Swift. That's Taylor which, Swift, which yeah. I think, which I think may have bumped him up the rankings. <laughs> he, he, he is very well known in his own right and deservedly so. <laughs> plays tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, Kylian Mbappe is also, of course, a soccer player, arguably yeah. the world's best. Andrew Tate is a massive jackass. <laughs> um, so he needs Google. <laughs> well, exactly. You've, you've got me. Um, so, but does, does that tell us anything about things that these are the top five most searched people? I think you know having a, a really unfortunate accident obviously puts you right to the top of, of Google search results, and people want a morbid, morbidly curious, and want to find out about bad things happening to people. Or, or going out with someone even more famous than you are. That too. Because because it, it is interesting that Travis Kelsey is on the list, whereas Taylor Swift is not. Presumably, everybody already knows who she is. <laughs> There's no need to Google Taylor Swift. Um, I was encouraged by this list because for two reasons. First of all, the number one recipe that was searched. <laughs> um, we're going back to back to food here, just in, in case we're all having to prep. Um, the number one recipe searched on Google was bibimbap, which is the most delicious Korean dish. And I'm delighted that, that this seems to be an indication that lots of people are eating it. That's a very, very um, good idea. Um, and it also seems that, that there is a sort of... Uh, international flavor, forgive the pun, um, to the rest of the list, and that is that it doesn't seem to be all generated by English language Googling or English mm-hmm. language requests. And so it's a reminder that there are other people as desperate for information out there as the English language world is. Uh, I was also struck by the most searched news stories. The top one was Israel versus Hamas, which was unsurprising. Then there was that thing with the Titanic submarine, which I think tells us a lot about stories that the kind of stories people get invested in. The theme of gruesome things happening. Well, exactly, to be, be, because because tragic though it obviously was, it was not grand scheme of things that big a deal. But it, it it did have that element of extreme jeopardy. The idea of a clock ticking, that is what really draws people in. We all like a bit of a good human disaster. Um, and you're right, this was sort of drip-fed to us over a number of days. Um, it was filled with mystery about whether they would find it, and if they did find it, what state would, it would be in. And then, it, of course, we all we all f- understood what the tragic ending was. Um, the next most searched items were the Turkey earthquake, which is understandable because that was a dreadful disaster that occurred in a country with a large population and a large diaspora, so that's logical enough. Then there were two hurricanes, which I will confess sort of both literally and metaphorically passed me by. Um, I did want to ask you both about the most searched songs. Would either of you be able to hum any of them with a gun at your head? No, remind me what they... <laughs> I, I no, no, I, I no. had absolutely nothing. <laughs> Not a single one. Um, so we then need to ask you both, and I think I know what an honest answer would be to this question, given that we're all journalists and authors here. Charles, what was your most searched term other than Charles Hecker? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Andrew, this is a horrible thing, but it's it's the absolute honest truth, and that is that the thing that I Google most frequently is is the sort of proper temperature to cook things at to avoid food poisoning. Um, that is my number one obsession that that when things come out of the oven they're not going to kill me 
Okay. Um, Terry? Uh, God, mine was probably, they're probably obscure bits of like parliamentary procedure because, as you say, British politics buffin and lots of people have been resigning this year. And so, like, Manor of Northstead and 300s of Chilton to find out who has become <laughs> the latest incumbent of those things, which is what happens when an MP resigns. And you have to keep checking on the Treasury website to see whether it's been updated to see if somebody had actually resigned or not. Much see, more I, interesting. I, I have no idea what mine was be, would be. I was trying to figure this out earlier and, and most of the Google rabbit holes I end up disappearing down uh, tend to be when researching the explainers for the foreign desk because you pull on any one of those threads and you can end up in some very strange places. So if there is somebody or some algorithm at Google which is in charge of logging my search results and drawing conclusions based on what I look for, they will have long since concluded that I am completely out of my mind. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but I kind of think that that's a conclusion. They should send you a list, like like they do with Spotify. You know, as soon as your 2023 in search terms, and we'd all be like, oh no, no terrifying, terrible. Do not want to know that. <laughs> Indeed not. Charles Hecker and Teres Diasny, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, we are heading to Copenhagen to visit Noma and its founder, René Redzepi, to talk about the restaurant's first magazine. Titled Noma in Kyoto, this publication is, as René himself defines it, a love letter to Kyoto in particular and Japan in general. This report is from Monocle contributor Gabriel Dallasanti. The founder of Noma, René Redzepi, did not expect that his first trip to Kyoto would one day lead to the publication of the restaurant's first ever magazine. It all began with a lunch reservation in 2009. Bookings weren't perennially full at the time, but one morning, as René went through the list of reservations, one name stood out. I was like, whoa, is Murata, Chef Murata-san from the world-famous Kikunoi restaurant in Kyoto coming to dine with us. I couldn't believe it. And then a few hours later, it was him. He ate, and then he said, come to Kyoto. The renowned Michelin-starred chef and restaurant owner is perhaps best known for his lifelong work in preserving and promoting Japan's deep-rooted culinary traditions. Under Murata's wing, René's first trip to the country marked a significant moment in his career as a cook, one that would define the course of his restaurant for years to come. The first thing we do is that we walk around the district of Gion in Kyoto, which is a historical district. It was late at night, there was no people around, and I felt like I was in a movie set. You know, I just couldn't believe it that something so different could exist right here. And we sat in and we had our first what Japanese call kaiseki meal, which is a very traditional way of serving a tasting menu. And um, I had this deep expression of seasonality served to you. Not only the dishes and the ingredients were seasonal, but the plateware was selected so as to express the moment you're in. Years later, Noma would go on to open a pop-up restaurant in Kyoto. Here, René got to experience firsthand the rich traditions of Japan's culinary culture and beyond. Then came the idea to document the restaurant's time in the Japanese city, and the collective effort behind opening and running a pop-up for the world's number one restaurant. We were back home in Copenhagen, and we had planned this for two years. We've had so many excursions back and forth, meeting people. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people were helping us pull this off. And it was almost as if people really couldn't 
they just didn't know how much work goes into it and all the different people involved in such a project. And so Tracy, one of um, the people that work at NOMA, she said, why don't we try to create a little pamphlet for the team so we can remember all the different people? And at that moment, it was just as if struck by lightning, you're like, why don't we just do our own magazine and try to put together a document of how we saw this place so that people can be inspired and they can read something in a new and fresh way that, you know, they probably can't do in other publications on Japan or Kyoto. The project quickly evolved into something bigger, what Rene now describes as a love letter to Kyoto. The handsome magazine unfolds over 220 pages of in-depth reporting and great photography. Printed in Sweden, not too far from Copenhagen, the issue is made from thick, high-quality paper and features two distinct covers, one on each side. Thematically, the magazine goes well beyond recounting the restaurant's time spent in Kyoto. It provides a thorough exploration of the country's culture seen through the lens of René and his team, drawing from their years of experience in Japan. Hasn't there been enough stuff written about Kyoto already in, the, <laughs> in its thousands of years of history? We decided very quickly that we would focus on what made our experience special. What did our team do in the six months that we lived there that made a difference to us, that we thought was special? And then we'd focus on them and sharing them so that people could learn something not just about the city, but also some of the deeper cultural parts of the craft of making pottery, for instance, or a guide to restaurants that you do, just won't see in regular uh, guidebooks. As René and the team got into developing the publication, he appreciated the beauty of collecting a diverse set of different stories. Noma in Kyoto allowed René to bring many different viewpoints, opinions and thoughts into one magazine. I loved making a magazine because unlike making books, in the magazine it was like, hey, shouldn't we have something about sake? And we make that decision, yes, and we find someone that can write about sake. Or what about if we need someone to write about omontenashi, which is the art of Japanese hospitality? And who do we know that does that well? I particularly wanted something on hiking because I think Japanese nature is extraordinary. It's a mountain country. And, you know, we can just contact almost anyone and suddenly you have a vision and a story in there that fits within what you want, but it stands alone as its, as its own unique thing. Greg Maud, the writer who did the hiking piece, he's done many hiking pieces for the New York Times and so on and so forth. And we contacted him and said, could you please talk about walking in Kyoto? So it's not, you know, a Noma-esque view on it, but we wanted to have hiking or walking in there. And it becomes a different viewpoint, but it fits within what we wanted. Noma in Kyoto is, for René, the first of many new magazine issues to come. Having thoroughly enjoyed this project, he's brimming with ideas for what comes next. I really love doing this magazine. Perhaps we should just do magazines, Noma magazines, on the topics that we love, where we feel like we can do and offer something that you can't find anywhere else. 
you know, the first thing I thought was fermentation. We should have a magazine on fermentation. Where is fermentation right now? I also love pastry. <laughs> it's a little stupid, but I love eating sweet things. And I'm like, wow, what if we had a magazine on pastries? But then I thought, what about if we had a guide to Copenhagen? What if we did Noma in, in Copenhagen and we actually made a magazine about our own place and gave people an opportunity to experience that in a different way? For Monocle Radio at Noma in Copenhagen, I'm Gabriele Delisanti. You can listen to that full interview on The Stack, which you can find along with all our other tremendous programming at monocle.com. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Charles Hecker and Terry Stiasny. The show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Neoma Aque. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Monocle.